Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Hosea. We'll select passages from chapter 1 and chapter 3. Please follow along in your bulletin. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer, and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore belong to another man, so I will be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Well, good morning, everybody. It's been a pretty crazy week for me. About uh, this time last week, I discovered I'd lost my mobile phone. <laughs> um, I've been uh, looking after my uh, cousin and her kids for the past week or so. They've been staying with me, and, and we've been traveling together and so on. So I've been acting as the dad for the week. They're my godkids as well. Uh, but one of the things I learned about uh, being a dad is, or having kids around is that, especially when you have, uh, you, you've got to focus you know, just on them. Um, and uh, it's a two-year-old and a four-year-old that uh, we were looking after. And the four-year-old has been um, described, uh, perhaps euphemistically, as uh, spirited or um, uh, rambunctious uh, or uh, a handful. Um, and so... Uh, you know, when, uh, when we were take, taking them in and out of taxis and so on, um, you know, I, I'm not the most uh, organized person anyway, and um, I can tend to be forgetful of, you know, my own personal belongings and so on. So when there's kids around, right, and you, you're responsible for making sure they get in and out of the taxi alive, then uh, other things just kind of get left behind. And so one of the things I left behind was my phone in the taxi last week. Um, and... Um, 
yeah, sad to say, we never heard from it again, even though we, we was kind of sent through a message through the network. So if anyone's tried to call me or, or message me or text me or anything like that, I apologize. Uh, I haven't been able to get back to you. So, uh, yeah, I asked another taxi driver and he said, oh, I think that was about six hours later, and he said, you know what, it's probably in Shenzhen by now. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's just gone. I haven't had a great run with taxis, actually. <laughs> so we ended up in uh, Hanoi uh, last week. And, uh, yeah, trying to keep two kids alive in Hanoi, I felt like, was my, my main job. I don't know if you've ever been uh, to Vietnam or anywhere around in third world countries, but, you know, you're walking down the streets, and there's just thousands of motorcycles coming by you. Um, and normally you can walk on the sidewalk, so it's sort of okay. But there was one street we went down which had no sidewalks. And so we were basically walking amongst, through and around the motorbikes. And I just had to keep a firm grip on a rambunctious four-year-old. And when you, when you, watch out for this as well. When you, when you end up in Hanoi, taxis try and scam you as well. So uh, sometimes it's just a couple of dollars or so on. But uh, the, on the trip back to the airport... Uh, because we had all these kids and all the luggage, and I was trying to make sure that you know everybody was going to be okay, uh, the guy just said, "Okay." I said, "How much?" And he said, "One and a half million dong." And I just handed it over without even thinking. Um, and then I thought about, "Hang on a minute, that's that's seventy-five US dollars. It's like five times as much as what I paid to get back out." And so I sat back in the taxi and argued with him for the next five minutes, um, and uh, yeah, they threatened to call the police and all that kind of stuff. And uh, Managed, he, managed, he gave me back like you know a third of it or something like that. So then he charged me, overcharged me three times instead of five times, uh, what he should have. Uh, so Eric's going next week, so I have to tell him that story. I don't think he's here, but um, yeah, he has to. He has to make sure. You know, I was I was I was pretty angry actually um, about that whole thing. You know, I hate being um, cheated. Uh, I think it just kind of runs in the family, and um, uh, yeah. It, you know, I was I was arguing with him, and the conversation was getting pretty heated, and and he was making up all this stuff, and uh, yeah, and and you know, afterwards, you know, I, I got out, and I just sort of couldn't even look at him, just shook my, shook my head, and um, you know, I just wanted to to you know shake him and say, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and and it made me think about um, uh, forgiveness, um, because that's that's what I was thinking about during the week, right? Um, and, and I didn't think about it till later, but I was reading in uh, Phil Yancey's book about, uh, about grace, um, the story of Les Miserables, where, you know, right at the beginning, you know, uh, Jean Valjean, the, um, uh, the prisoner, the hardened criminal, um, over 20 years uh, in jail, goes and, and he stays at the priest's house and he steals and he's treated with kindness and grace uh, to a thief. Um, he was shown forgiveness and mercy, and because of that, his whole life is changed and transformed. Um, and so, yeah, it just made me think, you know, how difficult it is for even us as people who have experienced grace to continue to practice grace in the face of in what we consider to be injustice or when we feel like we've been wronged in some way. There's a story of forgiveness that um, I heard as well uh, one time. And it goes kind of like this. There was a, a husband, and uh, he was happily married uh, to his wife. And in a moment of madness, he committed adultery one night. 
against his wife. And almost immediately, he, he regretted the terrible mistake that he'd made. And he decided to come clean and confess to his wife uh, what he had done. And n- not knowing how she would respond, he, he forced himself to do so, stealing himself for what she might say, not knowing what she would say. And her reply was this, What you have done has really hurt me, but I love you and I forgive you. He couldn't believe his ears. I mean, what could he say? Was that it? Could he be forgiven so easily? Is it that easy to forgive? In Hosea, we have a story of hurt and forgiveness. And Hosea has been called the the second greatest story of forgiveness in the Bible because it points to the greatest story of forgiveness in the Bible, which is found in the New Testament. But in this part of Hosea, um, we read about Hosea and Gomer. Gomer, a promiscuous woman, a woman of whoredom, who Hosea is told to to marry. And it seems strange to us that God would ask a prophet to do something like this. Um, but one thing that we, we need to understand is that the prophets were God's spokespeople, spokespersons uh, in the land of Israel at that time and, and other places as well. And God set, sent many prophets uh, to the land. And as we heard from just a few weeks ago when Graham spoke, about, uh, spoke on Amos, Hosea and Amos were contemporaries. And the land of Israel had, uh, had turned away from God. Um, they had actually enjoyed a long period of peace and prosperity uh, where riches had flowed into the land and the borders had expanded under King Jeroboam. And in this time, even, uh, religion was expanding and booming, but it was a religion which was not focused on God. Instead, it was what they call syncretistic. It was mixed in with the religions of all the other lands and places around them. And so God sees this and his heart is torn apart, broken because he sees a people who have deserted him and gone to run other other idols, run after other idols. Um, And so the prophets embody in themselves, kind of God's message uh, within them. Uh, to be a, a prophet, to be a spokesman, like, like the Old Testament prophets, is to, uh, to almost identify with God in such a way that you feel what God feels. Um, if you want to know what it's like to be an Old Testament prophet, you can read the words of, of Jeremiah. And, and he said, um, he, he talked about it like this, If I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. God's word is like a fire inside of the prophets. And it must come out. And in some cases, the prophets, even in their, not just their words, but their physical lives, embodied the message of God embodied the heart of God, the feelings of God, communicating 
what God wanted to communicate to his people. Hosea is one of those prophets. And so he is commanded to take a wife of Hordom and children of Hordom. And, uh, and he commanded to do so because Israel has left their God, has become unfaithful. And so Hosea marries, as it says, Gomer. And they, they get married and, and they have a child together. And after this child uh, is born and, and some more children are born, Gomer leaves Hosea for a new man, a new life. And God tells Hosea as well the names of the children that uh, he, um, he, he is to name them. And they are not, um, they are not pretty names. Um, Jezreel, the first one. It's just the name of the land that uh, was, they were in. But judgment was coming to that land. And that was why the name was given. The next ones were named, perhaps in accordance with the fact that they may not have been Hosea's children at all. No mercy and not my people. And God said that he would no longer show mercy to the house of Israel and that they would not be his people anymore. Because Israel were the people of God, chosen by God, and they were to be his people and he was to be their God, but they had wandered away had walked away, had deserted him. And so God, in effect, broke the covenant which he had with Israel, threw it aside and said, you are not my people and I will not be your God. Well, Gomer leaves, as I said, Hosea for a new man, a new life, and yet this new life doesn't seem to to work out in the way that she had intended because she sinks lower in, in, in society and eventually hits rock bottom when she is placed for sale on the slave market. She's reduced to nothing, owning nothing. In fact, not even herself. She's owned by another, the slave traders. And this sad story could have just ended here Except that in chapter 3, we're told that God tells Hosea to, to go and love her again. We're not told what Hosea thought about kind of such an instruction, um, but we can imagine. I think of the friend who was convinced that, or who suspected that his wife was, was emotionally um, unfaithful to him. And his fury knew no bounds as he suspected everybody. What were Hosea's options? Well, he could have just left her there, seen her at the slave auction market, left her to her own, uh, yeah, to her fate, laughed at her, told her that she deserved it. Or he could have he could have taken her in, bought her as a slave, and bought her in his house, under his house, and exacted his revenge by taking a new wife, which he was entitled to do under Jewish law. 
and bring her in as a slave under new management, as it were, so that she could see what she once had and missed out on. But that is not what God told him to do. God told Hosea to love her again. And so he, he, do, he does so. And you can imagine what, 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 if, what would have his friends and neighbors have said and thought about all this as they were watching this drama of this, this prophet and his wife being enacted out in Israelite society. Perhaps they would have said, Hosea, you're crazy. She doesn't deserve your love. She doesn't deserve your, your payment. <laughs> Why would you pay to take back this woman? Don't you remember? She left you. She took up with someone else. She betrayed you. She doesn't deserve your love. Yet Hosea obeys God. And he goes and talks to her and rescues her and, and gathers the resources necessary to pay the price for her freedom. And when he, brings her, and when he talks to her, he doesn't just uh, bring her in as a slave. No, he restores her to a position as a wife. She is fully restored, forgiven, and, res and he resets as well their marriage commitment. He says to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the war or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. It's a recommitment that of their marriage. That once again, she will be committed to him and he will be committed to her for life fully restored their broken marriage. It's a high price to pay as well. The resources that were needed to buy her back, the, hu the humiliation that he would have experienced, or that they both would have experienced from friends, family, neighbours, society. The hurt and anger that Hosea would have had to uh, either bury or, or just kind of um, assume within him. And the prophet was enacting the broken covenant relation, reenacting, I guess, the broken covenant relationship between God and Israel. We read chapter 1 and chapter 3, but between them is chapter 2, where God addresses Israel directly and speaks to her. And, and, and he says to her at that point that she is like this woman an adulterous woman, and they have become an adulterous people. As it says, Upon her children I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. Their mother has played the war. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I'll take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. 
the people of Israel were like Gomer. And the prophet and his wife were just kind of like a microcosm, an acted story of the wider story of that all of Israel shared. And when people looked in and asked, why is this happening to this prophet, this man of God? And they would know that this is because the finger was pointed right back at them. You, this is what you have done. This is who you are, are people who have forsaken God. And to read Hosea, and we don't have time, obviously, to read kind of the whole book. There's 12, 14 chapters, something like that. To read the whole book of Hosea is to see, um, to, get, to get a peek into the heart of God possibly more than any other book. And we see inside the heart of God is pain, his brokenness, as his heart is broken over his people. In chapter 4, verse 1, I mean, if you're following along, uh, if you've got kind of phones and so on, I'll, I'll be skipping around and so on, but just, this, just for this little while. But in chapter 4, verse 1, God says, Hear this word, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. This is the land of Israel, the chosen people of God where there is no knowledge of God in the land, no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no grace. In chapter 5, God says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of water is within them, and they know not the Lord. And in chapter 6, God kind of pleads with him. He says, in chapter 6, verse 4, What shall I do with you? O Ephraim, what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the dew that goes away early, goes early away. It's like somebody who, who turns around and, and, and loves someone only to, to change their mind and then come back again and then change their mind and then come back again. And that was the whole history of Israel. Right from the beginning, even when, when God saved them out of Egypt and they saw with their very own eyes what God had done for them, rescuing them with his mighty hand, his, his power. And yet, 20, 40 days later, they're off worshipping the golden calves. They're complaining. Uh, they're, they're forgetting who God, what God has done for them. And that cycle continues on as uh, they, they continue to forget God in one generation, cry out for mercy, and God comes and rescues them again. And then they forget God in the next generation. And they suffer and they cry out for mercy. And God comes and rescues them again. And they forget again. And this cycle just continues on. And, and God says, your love is like the morning mist. It's, kind of, it's there for a while and, and then it just evaporates. Like trying to love a prostitute who continues to have her eyes set on others. Hosea changes the metaphor a little bit in chapter 11 
when God treats Israel like a son. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. don't know if you've ever experienced a relationship like that. Family member or um, someone where a friend, where the more that you try and reach out to them, uh, the more they draw away and they will not be reached. Like Hosea's wife, the people of Israel, through their adultery, violated their marriage covenant with God again and again and again until there was nothing left. And so what can God do with such a people? God will end, this is why God declared that he will end that covenant, that they will not be his people any longer and he will no longer have mercy upon them to forgive them. Call her name no mercy, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And another son, the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. A people that have abandoned their God are in turn abandoned by God. <laughs> and if that was the end of the story, well, that would be it. There wouldn't be any more Israel. It wouldn't be a people of God at all. But it's not the end. And again, in, in this book, you know, you see this, uh, you see the, the dilemma in the heart of God. He says, you know, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I give you up, Israel? Um, he can't, and he says, I can't. I can't give you up. And so even in, just in chapter 2, a little bit before we got, we got to chapter 3, he turns and he says, I will make for them a covenant on that day once again. And I'm going to call them back. I will speak and allure Israel. He will woo her back to him. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The act of restoration between Hosea and Gomer in fixing what was smashed, irreparably broken, and putting it back together in restoring it is a picture of what God longed to do with the house of Israel to restore them to bring them back the people who were rejected by God will be restored once more and yet for all of these words you know the judgments the warnings in Amos the call to come back to God here in Hosea Israel never did come back to God Israel had a whole string of kings. I don't know how many, maybe 30, 40, more. And not one of them followed God with his heart, all his heart. Not one of them. Uh, and so they led the people astray all that time. And so 
even as the kingdom ended, they continued to follow other gods. And so Israel fell into ruin and were conquered by, by Assyria. Judah remained, um, and yet they too uh, forsook their God, were led into exile, and then returned back into the land. And the people of Israel were intermixed with the peoples around them. And so they became, by Jesus' day, the Samaritans. And they were a despised people by the Jews. Despised as those who were children of adultery. <laughs> they were the children of these, uh, these early Israelites. And they'd been mixed in with the other peoples of the land. And they worshipped God and they worshipped all these other idols at the same time. What about us? How do we read Hosea? And what about the way that Jesus comes in? And the way that he treated Samaritans? When he went to uh, visit a Samaritan village and encountered a woman at the well who was a woman who had five husbands and then was living with someone who was not her husband, a woman of a, a woman of whoredom. He called her and he named her and all the things that she'd done and he forgave her. And she turned around and told the whole village and they came out and met Jesus as well. And God, through that act, or through in that time, was all of a sudden calling back this broken and kind of destroyed people back to himself. And so what we have here is this, just this hint of what is yet to come. That not only Israel and Samaria, but all of the, all of the peoples of the world would come back and be restored to God. As we're thinking about it today, kind of here in 21st century Hong Kong, we might be thinking, well, am I, am I Hosea? Um, am I Gomer? Who, who do I identify with in this story? And you might be tempted to identify with one or the other and, and say, oh, if, if, if I'm to be Hosea, then my role is to try and win back you know, those relationships. Perhaps there has been a broken marriage and I need to, to fix that. Or if we identify ourselves as Goma, then you know we think that oh, we're the ones who um, we're the ones who are the whore, and we're the ones who've fallen away from God, and and we're the ones like Israel who are like Israel. But can I suggest that's actually not the best way of reading through the Old Testament, particularly through Old Testament prophets, so on, because that's not what the New Testament does. It, he, the New Testament doesn't say that we are the people of Israel. He doesn't teach that we are to be identified with Israel in that way. It, rather, Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians that what happened to the Israelites is a warning for us. That is, we are to look at the way that God dealt with Israel and we are to learn certain things about God and certain things about the human heart condition. And as I said before, what we learn from this passage, from the book of Hosea, is a peek into the very heart of God. And what we see in God's heart is real pain. And it's only when we see 
God's pain at a people who have deserted him, at a creation that has turned their back on him, even though he gave us life and breath and everything. It's only when we see the the depths of God's pain that we can see the depths of his forgiveness, the way he longs to reach out to us. And forgiveness is not without cost. It's not easy. Remember the story of that guy that I told you about from the beginning who was forgiven by his wife after committing adultery against her? He thought that it was so easy that he could be forgiven. He almost couldn't believe it. And after the affair and his confession of it, then life just seemed to go back to normal for them. And he thought, oh, that was it. I, I, I got off. And it seemed like everything was over until one day he heard what sounded like the sound of his wife crying. And he came closer until he realized that she was crying and she was praying to God. And he heard what she was saying, and she was saying, Oh God, please help me to forgive him. I want to, but it's so difficult. And in that moment, he realized what his act and the forgiveness that he had received cost his wife and was costing his wife daily. For him, it was free. But for her, the emotional cost was immense. For Hosea, the price of forgiveness was high. He paid for it with his own resources, with enduring disbelief, shock, and humiliation from his neighbors. And he had to swallow his own sense of injustice, injustice, hurt, and anger at his wife. So it is with God. This is what God does when he forgives us. It seems so easy for us. We confess our sin and ask and receive forgiveness and grace. But for God, the just judge of all the earth, it comes at a great cost. Jesus said that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Can a just God forgive when he looks upon this world and sees evil and wrongdoing and injustice and hurt and betrayal and lying and murder and adultery and cheating? Only by bearing the pain himself. Jesus Christ came as a ransom for many and he died for our spiritual adultery. This is the kind of God that we follow. A God who experiences the pain of brokenness, of broken relationships. And a God who walks through that pain and embraces even more pain in order to win us back. Do we know this God, this true forgiveness? How do we receive this forgiveness? You know, true forgiveness, it can't be demanded, expected, 
or presumed on. Can you imagine if that husband had, had gone in and, and demanded forgiveness from his wife for what he'd done? Would have been thrown in his face. No, forgive, true forgiveness can only be received with, with a kind of a, a humbled awe. Like that husband who was speechless when he realized the cost of forgiveness. And he could only stand there and receive it in, in humility. We receive forgiveness as well from God. Uh, true forgiveness. Not by demanding it from Him, expecting it from His hand, or presuming upon it. It can only be received with a kind of humbled awe as we come before God realizing that this is the God who made us, who gave us everything, who sustains us, and yet who we turn our back on, who we engage in idolatry against, who we get distracted from, uh, who is, rather than being foremost in our thoughts, is often last in our thoughts and a bottom priority for us. True forgiveness, though, overcomes revenge and spreads love, peace, and redemption. But as the woman who, who was betrayed was praying, so also it is hard, too, for us to forgive. Because forgiveness is not natural for the human spirit. Rather, unforgiveness is natural. And I think about that taxi driver. And what, uh, what I wanted to do, you know, to throttle him for what he'd done. When I think about a relative of mine who is old enough to remember the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong and says he would never go to a Japanese restaurant and never uh, speak to a Japanese person except to curse them. Decades on. When I think of... Uh, a pastor's wife crying at a pastor's conference as we talked about anger and forgiveness. And she was talking about hurtful relatives who she could not forgive. In this book, Philip Yancey writes of forgiveness. It's called uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. And uh, he tells a story of, of two peacemakers who visited a group of Polish Christians 10 years after the end of World War II. They said, would you be willing to meet with other Christians from West Germany? They want to ask forgiveness for what Germany did to Poland during the war and to begin to build a new relationship. There was silence. And then one Pole spoke up. What you are asking is impossible, he said. Each stone of Warsaw is soaked in Polish blood. We cannot forgive. Before the group parted, they said the Lord's Prayer together. When they reached the words, forgive us, forgive us our sins as we forgive, everybody stopped. Tension swelled in the room and the Pole who had spoken so vehemently said, I must say yes to you. I could no more pray our Father. I can no longer call myself a Christian if I refuse to forgive. Humanly speaking, I cannot do it but God will give us his strength. Eighteen months later, the Polish and West German Christians met together in Vienna 
establishing friendships that continue to this day. Unforgiveness forgiveness is hard because within us we want justice and we seek redress for the hurt that has been done against us. See, this is like Miroslav Rolf, who's, who's a Croatian a theologian. He writes, Deep within the heart of every victim, anger swells up against the perpetrator, rage inflamed by unredeemed suffering. We don't pray, uh, Father, forgive them for what they do. We, we'd rather pray, Father, forgive them not, for they knew exactly what they did. Forgiveness is an outrage against straight-line, dues-paying morality. If perpetrators were repentant, then forgiveness would come more easily, but too often they are not. And so victim, both victim and perpetrator, are imprisoned in the automatism of mutual exclusion, unable to forgive or repent, united in a perverse communion of mutual hate. And the trouble with revenge is that it enslaves us. And of course, he's talking about the genocide and thing of his hometown in, in Serbia, Yugoslavia, uh, in back in those days in the 90s, warfare, blood feuds and genocide, the end result of unforgiveness. But it takes an act of grace to break into that. It takes someone to, to take the initiative to forgive. Often we think, oh, I'll forgive if they come before me and are repentant. And I used to think that as well. And then I realized that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing when he was on the cross for people who had certainly not repented. To forgive is divine, as they say. And God's grace teaches us to forgive. The reason why we find it hard to forgive, even as people who have experienced forgiveness, and I don't know if you have or not, but one of the reasons we might find it hard is that we've forgotten forgiveness. We've forgotten who we are as people of God. We've forgotten, th- we've forgotten the forgiveness that comes to us. Like the unforgiving servant who couldn't forgive a debt, even though he'd been forgiven a debt millions of times greater. <laughs> reminded me of uh, when, when the kids were playing and they ran out of water. Uh, we ha- you can't drink the water in Vietnam. Uh, There's a tap water, so you've got to buy a bottle of water. And so they ran out of water. And so I had a big bottle, and I filled up one of the kids' bottles with mine and gave it to her. And uh, she took it gratefully and drank it. And then we told her, share it with your sister. She said, no, mine. <laughs> I was like, I just gave that to you. And we just, said, we just looked at each other and thought, that's, that's what it's like with us and God. We can't forgive this thing that somebody else has done towards us. And we say, no, that's mine that you've taken from me. Um, My hurt that I can't give up. And we forget God's broken heart. We forget the forgiveness that we've received. No wonder Jesus says that we should pray, Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sinned against us. Because if we cannot forgive others, then we have forgotten the forgiveness that was ours. And if we continue to forget that forgiveness, then perhaps we're not forgiven at all. Grace 
is the only solution to ungrace. I'm going to finish with this story, uh, one final story here, which illustrates this. And it's about a woman who had to forgive. You see, uh, and I think the names have been changed, but Rebecca, uh, in, this, in, in weeks of meeting together in this small group discussion regarding forgiveness, spoke up and said that she had married a pastor who, who was quite well known, and yet he had a dark side. Um, he would visit prostitutes whenever he would visit, when he would go to other cities to speak. And she knew about it. And sometimes he would ask Rebecca for forgiveness, and sometimes he did not. And in time, he left her for another woman, Julianne. Rebecca told us how painful it was for her, a pastor's wife, to suffer this humiliation. Some church members who had respected her husband treated her as if his sexual straying had been her fault. Devastated, she found herself pulling away from human contact, unable to trust another person. She could never put her husband out of her mind because they had children and she had to make contact with him to arrange visitation. And she had this increasing sense that unless she forgave her former husband, a hard lump of revenge would be passed on to their children. For months she prayed. At first her prayers seemed as vengeful as some of the Psalms. She asked God to give her husband what he deserved. Finally, she came to the place of letting God, not herself, determine what he deserved. One night, Rebecca called her ex-husband and said in a shaky, strained voice, I want you to know that I forgive you for what you've done to me, and I forgive Julianne too. He laughed off her apology, unwilling to admit he had done anything wrong. Despite that, the conversation helped Rebecca get past her bitter feelings. A few years later, Rebecca got a hysterical phone call from Julianne the woman who had stolen her husband. She'd been attending a ministerial conference with him in Minneapolis, and he'd left the hotel room to go for a walk. A few hours passed, and Julianne heard from the police her husband had been picked up for soliciting a prostitute. On the phone with Rebecca, Julianne was sobbing. I never believed you, she said. I kept telling myself that even if what you said was true, he had changed. And now this. I feel so ashamed and hurt and guilty. I have no one on earth who can understand. Then I remembered the night when you said you had forgave, forgiven us. I thought maybe you could understand what I'm going through. It's a terrible thing to ask, I know, but could I come and talk to you? Somehow Rebecca found the courage to invite Julianne over that same evening. They sat in their living room, cried together, shared stories of betrayal, and in the end prayed together. Julianne now points to that night as the time when she became a Christian. Our group was hushed as Rebecca told her story. She was describing forgiveness, not in the abstract, but in the, re in the reality of the rawness of a husband steal and abandoned wife kneeling side by side on a living room floor praying. For a long time, I had felt foolish about forgiving my husband, Rebecca told us. But that night I realized the fruit of forgiveness. Julianne was right. I could understand what she was going through. And because I had been there too, I could be on her side instead of her enemy. We both had been betrayed by the same man. Now it was up to me to teach her how to overcome the hatred and revenge and guilt she was feeling. God comes and identifies with us. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. And yet he became sin for us. God bridged the gap. He came in 
and forgave us. He has been there and he knows and understands. And even and as Jesus as is recorded, forgiveness was not easy for Jesus either. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, Jesus prayed. There was no other way. And yet he says, in his dying moments, forgive them, all of them, the Roman soldiers, the religious leaders, the disciples who fled in darkness, you, me, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Let's pray. Father God, we know that we are a people who sometimes are far away from you and run in the opposite direction, even though you hold out your hands to us. And we might take a step forward, but then fall back again. And Father, I know that in my life too, um, I have failed to, to continue to, to follow you, to, um, to seek after you. Forgive me, forgive us. Uh, Father, we ask that uh, you would help us to remember not to demand or expect or presume upon your forgiveness, but to receive it from you with humbled awe. And we thank you uh, for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.